I think diagnostics is always kind of doing this. Like you find a new technology and then you figure out like, is it better than what it has been before or is it not, right? A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable ways. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. Interested in finding out more about nutrition solutions for poultry farming? Be sure to stop by and say hello to the Adiseo booth, B6719 at IPPEE, in Hall B at the Illinois Pavilion, fueling predictable profits. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Um, today I have with me Dr. Yuko Sato. Uh, she's a colleague and a friend. Uh, I have the fortunate <laughs> uh, pleasure to call her a friend as we've got a lot of stuff that we like to do outside of our work. Um, she's an associate professor in the College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, her role is poultry extension and diagnostic uh, pathologist. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sato. Thank you, Dr. Bobek. <laughs> um, so today I kind of want to chat about how you got into poultry. Um, I know your story is unique as most people's are, but how, how did you get into the land of chickens? <laughs> so it's, uh, it kind of started with a, with a funny story. Um, I originally had no intention to go into veterinary school and I kind of fell into it because I, I went to my undergrad in Georgia and my college advisor had accidentally passed away. And so I got transferred into a new academic uh, advisor who was a pre-vet professor and he saw my half-baked transcript with kind of a hodgepodge of classes. And since he does a lot of advising for pre-vet students, he looked at me freaked out and be like, oh my God, you have no biology classes, you have no chemistry classes, and how are you going to get into vet school? And so I didn't know what I was doing. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll take all these classes. And I was like, oh my gosh, you need to start working at one of these college farms. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'll do that right away. So right away, I got hooked up to work at the college dairy, uh, started volunteering at the horse barn, and then here I am with all the animal science, biology, pre-vet classes, um, and fell into veterinary medicine. And at that point, I was still doing cattle. Um, and then I got into veterinary school, and I was like, oh my gosh, I am terrible at palpating cattle. Uh, how can I get into a consulting role? Because that's kind of what I was wanting to do. And uh, my veterinary school classmate uh, happened to go into a 100% commercial poultry veterinarian role. And he was like, ah, I think you might do well with poultry. And I was like, okay, how do I go about that? And I was like, well, do you want to meet one of the professors? She has a residency program that she's trying to set up. And I was like, okay, well, um, let me have a chat with her. So we go out for dinner. We have sushi. I pull out my very crumpled resume out of my car and she was like, okay, well, that sounds great. Nice to meet you, everything else. And then probably about two months later, I had gone to other interviews looking for, you know, the run-of-the-mill mixed animal practice job. And then she's like, hey, Yuko, I got the job. You know, why don't you, you you've got it. You're, you're good to go. Uh, why don't you get started? And she was like, great, I, I will be there. At that point, I have taken zero poultry classes, to be quite honest with you. Uh, I had an appreciation of production medicine, but that was one thing I never really learned in veterinary school because it was kind of one of those blind spots. And I, I like to challenge myself with kind of something new and something different. And 
my major professor at that point, um, she was kind of a funky person. She's like, oh, I'll teach you everything. You'll, you'll kind of get along. And, you know, you know, my classmate was really good friends with her. So I'll take his word for it. And the, the rest is history. So here I am kind of winging it. And uh, I guess I guess you can do anything. <laughs> Winging it. <laughs> it's a great pun. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did how did you make that transition from animals that are bigger than you to animals that just fly? <laughs> that dairy <laughs> to poultry is quite a yeah, quite a yeah. change. <laughs> you know, um, my parents were always concerned about me working with cattle, and they're like, every year I help out with the state fair, I get kicked by a main Anjou or trampled by a Kianina, and they're like, you know, how long are you going to do this? You know, and I'm palpating cattle that are, like, way above my ergonomic height, so I'm, like, palpating like, at this angle, and they're like, uh, you know, I don't know how long you're, maybe in your 30s you're going to have rickets or something, and so they were kind of concerned about that to start with. And, um, I actually don't really like things that fly over my head. So when, when I was working with poultry and chickens and turkeys don't really fly over my head, I was ecstatic. So it was great. Um, yes. they're smaller than me. I grew up with birds actually, uh, as a kid. So I, I was very familiar with bird husbandry in that aspect. So I was happy to see that my parents are happy. So all's, all's well that ends well. Gosh, it's a win-win. <laughs> So uh, once you once you graduated from vet school, what was the path that you took to end up at Iowa State University? So I uh, did a poultry residency at Purdue with the professor I just mentioned, the one I bonded over a sushi dinner. And I finished that residency. I was actually the first student out. It was a pilot program. She kind of combined poultry and pathology. Um and her role was also in university extension. So I did a lot of that. Um, and I helped out with teaching as well, too. So I got some of that under my belt. And she was also a pathologist. So I kind of did that as well, too. So I kind of had a, in a good or bad way, I was a master of none, jack of all trades. So I can do kind of a little bit of everything, but not so great in anything. So I was a specialist and not specializing. So that was my claim to fame. And so when I started looking for jobs, I could have taken an industry job that kind of was like, I do broilers or I do layers or I do research, but I was like really not that great with any of them. But then if I look for a job that's well-balanced, because I get bored pretty easily. So I was like, okay, you know, maybe I'll do this university gig, see how it goes. I'm not at a stellar A-plus student, but maybe, maybe it'll work. And um, I found out that it, it's a very good uh, mix for me because it keeps me entertained because I do something different every day. Um, and I still get to do everything I want. I do diagnostics, I do research, I do teaching, and I do extension. So it's kind of a win-win for me too. Yeah, that that's quite the split. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, you started your position with trial by fire, it was the first outbreak of HPAI and they just welcomed you right into the state to kind of deal with what was going on. What was that like as a new assistant professor walking into that? Super overwhelming. I was like, where am I? What am I doing? Who am I? You know, it was overwhelming at the beginning, but you know, at the same time, there's, there's a good that comes out of a situation. It, kind of forced people to get to know me because I was it, right? So they're like, okay, well, we have this problem. I need to send birth to the lab or I need to do this PCR test. And who do you call, right? Not Ghostbusters, it's me. So they were just yeah. kind of forced to meet with me on every situation. There, I was asked to speak about things that I didn't do, but you know, <laughs> had to learn to do. And so you kind of have an overnight expert here, right here. And so now... In 2022, unfortunately, 23, uh, we are going through another outbreak. At least I've gone through that once. So, you know, I, I have a little bit of at least some experience under my belt. So it was it was great to have that experience just so I know I can be flexible and also network with people I, I already know. So which is good. So what has changed in the diagnostic world from... Uh, maybe since you started or just since you've been trained, like what are there things that have advanced or are there things that you are noticing that need to be developed? Like what's going on in diagnostic land for pathology, avian pathology? Sure, sure. 
I think diagnostics is always kind of doing this. Like you find a new technology and then you figure out like, is it better than what it has been before or is it not, right? So for example, I have this really nice microscope here, right? I'm still looking at little tissues under the microscope, right? It seems pretty antique because that's the stuff we've been doing for years. Um, the investment that we have now is now all these slides can get scanned digitally. So I can go on my computer, mm -hmm. hop on anywhere in the world, just uh, log in and just take a look at my slides without actually having a microscope there and also take super high quality images. So that's kind of, you know, we still use that old technology, but you kind of expand on with like the newer shinier toys. Uh, same thing with some of the, the PCRs and some of the assays we have, you know, the, you know, there's some old assays, like, you know, do we still grow bacteria to look for bacterial diseases? Sure. But can I do a little bit further and say, okay, I'm going to take that bacteria and I'm going to do some genetic sequencing to figure out, okay, this is similar to the one this farm had, you know, one year ago, or, you know, maybe it's an outbreak and it's spread from another farm. Now I can say, okay, farm A, spread it to farm B and C, because if I do the genetic analysis, they're related to each other. So you get a lot more information than just here it is. Um, and it kind of provides a little powerful tool and, you know, not just understanding the disease itself, but also understanding the, you know, the transmission, the epidemiology and how to control and, and treat diseases. So it's it's been kind of a nice marriage of, you know, the tried and true old technology and kind of expanding on it with the new technology out there. Yeah, that it sounds uh, a lot more interesting or beneficial to be able to link if infections or outbreaks are related that might help treatment or control, I guess, in the case of HPAI. Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, are you what kind of farms are you working with? Uh, is, uh, within the state of Iowa, of course, I think you probably see a wide range Yep. Um, most of my, I guess, clients would be either commercial layers or commercial turkeys, just geographically where we are. We're number one in laying hens and we're number seven in commercial turkey. So we have a bunch of clients around, which is super awesome when you're doing collaborative research or you're taking out students to farm. So that's kind of the main kind of bucket of uh, clientele I have. But I also have clients who are game bird owners. Um, I have a couple of small flock owners as well, too. Um, and I have some sort of specialty owners. So I've got uh, two clients that have large birds. So those are like ostrich and, and rheas. So I've got a couple of those stable clients, too, which is super fun, too. And sometimes weird ones like this uh, peacock feather you see here. So I've got a peacock client as well, too. So <laughs> every day you kind of get to meet these uh, fun and kind of weird people. So it's awesome. Ah, oh, the peacock and ostrich sound really interesting. What what are the differences when you have to go work with those birds versus like a, you know, a laying hen flock that might be a million birds? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, at that point with like these unique specialty birds, you kind of need to lean on the owner. You know, the chickens and turkeys I'm familiar with. I, I know how they work. I'm kind of familiar with what, you know, production problems I have or, you know, the common diseases I see. But with all these kind of outside of the normal scope of things, I really need to ask the owner, like, hey, is this abnormal for your bird? Or, you know, what are some things you're doing? And I really lean on them to kind of educate me on what I don't know, because I've never raised ostriches my life. I seen peacocks <laughs> at the zoo, but like, I've never really raised peacocks myself. So these are the things I need to lean on them and they can help me and then I can impart my medical knowledge. And it's kind of a two way street. So what are the ostrich farms doing? Are they, um, is it a meat bird? Is there something else? Is it just for fun? Is it feathers? Is it eggs? I mean, that's, it's an intriguing business. <laughs> It's actually all the above. So uh, the farm that's actually <laughs> relatively close to here, uh, they do a lot of um, kind of this small pet ownership. So they provide to like small petting zoos and stuff like that. Uh, they put the animals in the hall of breeds, you know, like if you have like the little pens in like the, the teaching, learning teaching barns, they have those there. But they also sell like the oils, you know, so you have your hand creams and lotions uh, from those uh, big birds. The other farm that's a little bit up north, uh, they do meat production. So they uh, sell kind of like the 
I think it's kind of around here, but it's like the filet mignon of ostriches. Um, and you can get little ostrich sticks, like those, uh, you know, chicken sticks that you get at the store. Um, but they also sell like these ornamental eggs for Christmas decorations. And uh, they have these gigantic femurs and uh, tibias for dog chew toys that are like probably bigger than a dog. It's like this big. Um, <laughs> and all these fun oh other items that comes with it so like the little feathers for jewelry and stuff like that so they sell kind of a little bit of everything have you had ostrich meat or ostrich eggs i have oh, not yeah. oh yeah both so the egg was <laughs> the egg was an accident <laughs> but the ostrich meat i did buy from my client um and in my family my tradition is for thanksgiving Instead of just turkey, we kind of do mystery meats. So for years, we've done something different. So, yeah. So one year, you know, I was in charge of Thanksgiving and my brother-in-law's like, well, what what are you going to, what are we going to do this year? And I was like, you know what? I just acquired an ostrich client and I just found out there's a filet mignon in ostrich. Let's make ostrich. And since my brother-in-law is a chef, he's like, all right, bring it on. Um, I don't know how to cook ostrich, but I'll look it up and we'll figure it out. So we bought this gigantic piece of ostrich meat and uh, he, he seared it like he would for like a like a skirt steak, like a hanger steak. And uh, it came out great. But, you know, it's just kind of like the, the claim of the fame or like the boast of the town. Right. Like, hey, what did you have for Thanksgiving? I was like, oh, we had ostrich in our family. So it was kind of cool. It was a good experience. <laughs> Uh, that that's got to be a fun part of the job is meeting some of the different uh, kind of smaller, smaller scale poultry operations and <laughs> getting to know what they do. And then also, you know, trying the fair. So <laughs> uh, have you so what are the peacock owners doing? I mean, they're beautiful birds. But I don't from a production standpoint, I don't even know what the goal is. Yeah, well, some of my clients do some other interesting stuff, too. So one of them, has uh, this guy's name is Mr. Peacock. Um, he has furnished birds for <laughs> the Playboy Mansion before, so that's where some of the peacocks go to. Yeah, he's also a wealth of the genetics, too. So if, you, if somebody wants to get into peacock production, he's got a lot of the, the different uh, melanistic breeds that they have, so... Um, in addition to the feathers, of course, you know, if there's a market for, you know, the, the jewelry, the decorations, that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what their market is. But of course, at the zoos as well, too, or other exhibitions. Oh, that's so crazy. So for, from a, like a pathology or diagnostic standpoint, how, what are the differences between the production birds and then some of the, I mean, I don't want to not call them production birds, but just some of the less the smaller market. So uh, game birds or ornamental birds versus the actual uh, chickens or, you know, commercial poultry. So is it harder? It's, it's, um, well, in a way it's harder. So for the small flock owners, they usually don't have a veterinarian. So I, I might be the only vet they've really communicated with. So they might have diseases that would be probably easily prevented by vaccination or just, you know, management protocols to reduce, like, for example, a parasite, right? They should be able to put something in their feed or something in their, you know, preventative bucket to kind of make sure they don't have this problem. But again, since they know really well about management, but might not know about disease prevention, that's something that I see more often is like, oh, you know, if you vaccinate your birds, you probably won't have a big outbreak of, of this, right? Uh, versus the commercial birds, they usually have a veterinarian attached there. So, and, you know, they can diagnose most of the probably common diseases. What I will kind of be here to assist is either confirm their suspicions on their diagnosis by running diagnostics, whether that's, you know, the molecular testing, the bacterial culture, you know, maybe looking at things under the microscope to confirm what they're seeing um, with the naked eye um, or it's more management problems. And, you know, of course, 99% of the time, most of the problems I see are not infectious. They're typically more management related and you have diseases that sprout out from, you know, lack of, you know, good management. And that's what springs to these secondary infections. So I'm here to kind of support their hypothesis, kind of curate their, diagnostic question. And again, 
it's different speaking to a level of someone that has a lot, you know, higher level of understanding to the small flock owner that says, okay, how do I digest this really intimidating long disease name into something that they can understand? So that's kind of the difference I see. So at least for the the small animal or not small animal, the small, the small producer versus the larger producer, um, do they use your services differently? In a way, yes. So the some of the small flock owners might have a, a dog or cat vet that they already work with. If they're willing to and are up to the challenge to kind of learn a little bit more and help them through their problems, I usually communicate through their veterinarian. And can we kind of work together to come up with a viable solution? Um, and uh, the, the small flock owners usually... Um, they, they kind of have to be a little bit creative about what they can do because the commercial side, you will have more tools that are available for treatment at like a 10,000 bird scale because that's what the commercial um, products are out there for. Small flock owners have to say, okay, well, I have this vaccine for let's pick like Merrick's disease, right? But this comes in doses of 5,000. Now I have 50 birds with names in it, right? What do I do with this vaccine <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to give? Now to this bird of bird flock of fifty, uh, without being super wasteful, um, but still kind of being able to address that solution. So, yeah, it's a it's it's a kind of different playing game. Yep. I don't know if I answered your so question what, at all. <laughs> what have you? Yeah, you, no, you did. You did. What have you been seeing since? Um, I'll just call them backyard flocks, but basically small flocks where people have let's say five or 10 or 15 or 20 laying hens i think they know to go to a veterinarian if they have an issue but usually that veterinarian is a dog or cat and they might not have uh the experience and so then you might get a referral so are you seeing kind of an uptick in just different diseases or different sorts of educational opportunities from people that have those small flocks and are they coming to you or are they kind of not getting to your level just because they're either intimidated or don't know. Sure. My always, my preference is for them to work with a local veterinarian that's close to them, you know, even if they're not trained in poultry, because I wasn't too once upon a time. And here I am, I'm an expert, right? So, um, I, yeah. I usually <laughs> try to see if there's any interest from these small animal or mixed animal practitioners and, We've done a couple of workshops where we train the trainer, basically, and have these small or mixed animal veterinarians be kind of equipped with at least, you know, a, a vision into what I do to approach problems in poultry production or poultry medicine. And, you know, honestly, the biggest thing to do is just to be creative. So I usually kind of brainstorm like, okay, well... In commercial setting, I would do this, but since this is a flock of five, they're not willing to, you know, put medication. Let's say they're organic and they're like, I'm, I'm not really interested in using antibiotics. You know, what can we do? So we can come up with creative solutions that maybe you can take in from other production side. Like, oh, you know what? There's this, you know, there's a procedure that we do in cattle that we use X, Y, Z, and maybe we can try that in poultry. So just working with them and trying to figure out, you know, something that's practical, um, but at least reasonable uh, and, of course, not illegal. And if that's the case, yeah. I, I would much <laughs> rather work with, with something like that and be creative with another veterinarian to kind of put, put two heads together, right, um, and just yeah. come up with a solution. That's a much more permanent, viable solution than, um, hi, i just calling you out of the blue if we've never met, you know, and uh, can you help me out? Right. So I'd, I'd much rather have someone that has a personal connection with the client uh, guide them through so then they can potentially establish, you know, maybe a, a niche market in that community saying, hey, I heard that Dr. So-and-so started seeing poultry, backyard poultry. I've got a small flock, too. Maybe I can consult with he or she as well. So I think I, I think it's uh, great if they can work with the local community and kind of grow their practice or grow their interest um, rather than, than me um, who can help, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not there for them when, when they really need, need, need help. So. Yeah. Your, uh, your role with the different splits that it has, I, I understand why it might be harder to have 
a lot of little clients just because the bigger clients might take up a different amount of time or diagnostic requirements or whatever. But the local connection, I think, is really important. So they continue to work with them. Something else arises. So um, do you, uh, this is just maybe a personal interest because there's some assays that I like to run more than others uh, in my lab. And I know my grad students have different favorites, but do you, do you have a favorite assay that you like to run? <laughs> a diagnostic assay? Oh, <laughs> um, well, I usually like to do PCR um, just because it's convenient. I can get results and I can do something with it really quickly. And I'm pretty impatient when it comes to diagnostics. So I usually want results yesterday. So I don't really want to wait around for a virus to grow or a bacteria to grow or something like that. So I, I like looking at PCR. It's it's pretty cut and dry, uh, you know, very le- least likelihood of having errors. And then, you know, once I get a result, I can do something with it. So I, I like I like PCR probably. <laughs> I thought it might be something that was more rapid. <laughs> that was my <laughs> guess for you. <laughs> I do like that too. Understandable though, because if, when you have an issue, you want to kind of get it solved and the faster you can have a, at least some sort of outcome, then you can get it solved faster. So I get that because you got a lot of clients to work with. <laughs> um, is there something that doesn't exist right now that you wish existed? Like where, where are you going to take your program in the future? What do you think you, what do you think you need to develop or work on or someone else develops that you get to use? Sure. One of the research topics that we're working on right now is uh, basically third generation or next generation sequencing. And in the human medical side, there's been a lot more applications where you basically take a sample from the field and without asking to do like, I want this test, you take that sample and it'll find everything that's wrong with it. So it's kind of a one-stop shop. So the future is getting closer it's just there's a lot more. It's it's a massive amount of information because it's uh, the the one we're working on predominantly called, is called Minion Nanopore, and you basically what I see, what I visualize because I'm a very abstract person, I guess. So you basically have all these snippets of genes that looks like these small strands of spaghetti, and you're making it go through the sieve, and as it goes through the basically the strainer, right, and you're putting a spaghetti through, it's reading all the genetic information and it's generating that that code. And that automatically translates to like a sequence of a virus or a bacteria and it's real time. So you can get like, if I'm looking at, you know, a, I'll, I'll continue with the spaghetti analogy. If I have a large bowl of bolognese, I don't have to finish the whole bowl of spaghetti to figure out that I have high path avian influenza there. I can even tell what strain of influenza it is uh, depending on how long of a read of that sequence I get, which is super cool. Um, but we're not quite there yet for everyday usage. We're starting to get there, but I hope we get to a point where, you know, s- someone that has no um, experience in doing this can comfortably say, yep, I'm confident with these results and that's what I have. And I don't really need to do further testing to, or to, you know, confirm that my suspicions that, you know, is this accurate enough? So that's kind of the the next step future that we're working on. So does sequencing like that get around some of the issues maybe with um, if you vaccinate, then it shows an antibody and it doesn't tell you exposure versus vaccination? Um, It's even more than that. So it'll actually even tell you, for example, if you have a, a sample that's not even viable anymore. Let's say I've had a bacterial culture, it's dead, all right? But I don't need to grow it to do information. I can get the genetic information and say, yeah, this bacteria is this, right? Or I can also say um, I get this information all through uh, the sequencing results. um, And I can potentially work with viruses. I'll use COVID as an analogy. That virus mutates all the time, right? So I don't have to say, okay, well, if this test is negative, it's, it's, you know, I can't do anything about it. This test will also kind of account for the fact that it's mutational. It's just looking for a sequence that matches what it's um, looked at in the past. Um, so you can blast against a gigantic library of things. So you're, you're looking at a much larger possibility of the denominator rather than saying, okay, I'm looking for 
I'm just looking to test for this one disease. And if it's negative, we're back to the drawing board. So it's a lot more, how do I say that? It's, it's a lot more flexible in the sense that, you know, it's, uh, you don't have to think that hard anymore. <laughs> so are you developing panels to read of the most likely diseases or are you just uh, kind of collecting all possible uh, bacteria, virus, other pathogens, and then just asking, do you have that? There's probably two different ways you could do it, right? Sure. Yeah, we're pursuing both because uh, we're greedy and we we want to, you know, eat the cake and have it too, you know? So that's all we're trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So um, I think a test like that would also just require, I mean, the vast amount of information you could get from that is probably a benefit and a downfall just because you have this information and then you have to sift through like, what, what actually do I have? And I, I wonder if it could be a discovery tool for some of the other maybe concurrent infections that could cause uh, the primary infection to become much worse. Like that's such an interesting thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that was like the uh, old thing where the old exams that we used to take is, okay, well, the main diagnosis is this, right? So they want you to find, okay, your your main thing out of this, whatever study set was like, I want you to find ILT, but there's more, you know, like, and there's more. So it's like more like, okay, it's got a twofer, it's got ILT and MG and bronchitis. So it's kind of one of those where instead of saying like, okay, is this a trick question? Like, I don't have to look for that trick question anymore because it's, it's there provided to you. But yes, it's a massive amount of information that I have no idea until my postdoc does the magic. And then suddenly it actually makes sense. But it, it is, it is a, a beast of a tool to harness for sure. Yeah, gosh, that, that's an exciting place to be. Um, I know Iowa State's got an incredible diagnostic facility, but it's really fun that you're working on some of the technologies that are kind of pushing the bar a little further. Um, how, uh, how do you so then how do you work with, let's say, potential field sites? Um, what kind of samples do you take? And are people kind of willing to work with you on, in the development process? Um, as far as just like, I guess, uh, are you asking about like the, this technology or just in general, like working with a new client? Yeah, and just in general. So like for, you know, this high throughput sequencing, do you need... Uh, like a nasal swab? Do you need a cloacal swab? Do you need some other sort of tissue? And then like, how do you how do you work with people, basically to continue developing those technologies? You can use whatever you want. I mean, you can get the top of an eraser, <laughs> we can probably figure out something too. But it's uh, oh it, yeah, you could put whatever you want, it'll just read out a bunch of junk. But you know, a lot of the times, the biggest hurdle we have is to sort out all this junk genome from the chicken itself. So teaching the machine to say, okay, mm -hmm. this is part of the chicken and not a bacteria or a virus or a fungus or protozoa and saying, okay, this is something I need you to look at. This is something I don't need you to look at. Register that this is a chicken, not, you know, something else. So that's kind of the, the library prep is what we call it, is the step that we spend a lot of time making sure that the machine doesn't make a mistake saying like, oh my gosh, we found this incredible novel thing. I was like, yeah, that's part of the chicken. Don't worry about it. So. <laughs> oh, it sounds like a fun part of the process. <laughs> um, so do you, are you, you using other diagnostic techniques side by side just to confirm that they're both working? Is that maybe one of the processes you go through? Absolutely. Yep. So we all those samples that we do, we can confirm with PCR and other tests. Uh, and most of the time we're like, for example, one of the ways we use it is we characterize a virus or a bacteria. So we do need an isolated bacteria to in order to kind of characterize the genome, assemble the genome and trying to figure out like what parts of it is different from, you know, the this this bacteria in this farm versus this other bacteria from this other farm. So you know, curating that kind of information, you still need those um, kind of, I don't want to say rudimentary, but fundamental tests, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The tried and true. <laughs> um, so what, what sort of things are going on right now? I mean, other than high path avian influenza, we know that is kind of in the uh, kind of in the back burner, but with different trends and how production has to be done, just what is allowed, you know, as far as medical treatment or what can be in the feed or whatever, like what do you what are you seeing and what what tests are are becoming really important? I think honestly, um, 
a lot of things have not changed. Like the problems that were there in the past are still a problem. Um, I would say there's probably a lot more emerging diseases, especially like maybe bacterial diseases that maybe way back when they just called it mysterious foul plague or whatever, right? And then nowadays, because we have more technology, we can actually put a name to it and say, actually, this bacteria we thought was something else happened to be this. And then you're like, okay, well, there's this huge rise of this problem that's been usually misdiagnosed in the past. Um, I still see a lot more infectious diseases now that a lot of the commercial production is pushed towards, um, you know, no antibiotics ever or antibiotic free. Um, And so you see a lot more bacterial problems, maybe more parasite problems now that um, a lot of birds are housed you know, outdoors or outdoor access, you have kind of go back to the the good old days where you see problems that happened in the 60s come back to life um, in 2020. So that's kind of the trend I'm seeing. But I mean, overall, you know, chickens have chickens and turkeys have similar diseases that they had in the past. They'll still see it today. Yeah. Um, so I know you've you've been doing this this job for quite a while, but are there any like interesting cases that just are maybe fundamental core memories that shaped your career or just something that you thought was really like, huh, interesting? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, usually my career is based on uh, things that I can't do anything about. Uh, But it it is, I'm trying, I'm trying to kind of help, help get confused with the client. (laughs) I think that's kind of my claim to fame now. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I, it's for some reason, well, I mean, I guess there is a reason. Um, most of the problems that people want me to solve are things that, you know, people have tried and they're like, I still can't find an answer for. So some of the examples I have is like Clostridial dermatitis, right? You know, we know it's Clostridium, you find it there, but is there a root cause of this? Is it, you know, genetic management, underlining viral immunosuppression? Who knows, right? Lots of people have done a lot of things. People have created vaccines, probiotics, prebiotics, you know, barn amendments, but you know, there's no silver bullet per se, because I think it's a multifactorial disease. So that's one. A um, mm-hmm. couple of viral diseases that I work on that uh, don't really have a good fundamental, like it's not, it's not some something like influenza where people have researched the crap out of it, beating the dead horse. You know, a lot of things people are worried about now, you know, like it's a small kind of a problem in a, you know, small group of people, but it's a big enough problem that it's plaguing the industry. But is that at the top of their list? Maybe not, you know? So some of those problems, uh, we kind of try to help them find creative ways to deal with it. Probably not a treatment or so, but kind of more understanding the epidemiology or kind of learning to kind of mitigate the, the worst of the worst, uh, rather than just saying, mm-hmm. okay, here's this magical antibiotic, or here's this magical vaccine that's going to cure <laughs> all your problems. It's just more like, okay, well, uh, do we know that this problem that happened in March is the same one that happened in May? Let's figure out to see if there's any correlation. Did it spread? Um, or is there a point source? That kind of stuff I can help answer. So, you know, I'm, I'm, here, to, I'm here to get frustrated with them. I love that. Uh, our problems are everyone's problems now. <laughs> is has there been like a a favorite case or something that you just remember really well just because the outcome was really interesting or is it kind of all like okay there's eight problems here like do you uh do you have a something that just jumps out to you as uh just an interesting case? Sure. Um, I actually published on this when I was in my residency, but I had a, a flock of chickens that came in that looked like they were drunk. And I remember the pathologist I was working with, <laughs> and he looks at them and he's like, um, I thought they were supposed to be live birds. And I was like, oh, it's still live. And he's like, looks at them and he's like, do they have high path or Newcastle or whatever, because they look like crap. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know. They just came in like this. They're lethargic. And he's like, uh, lethargic my ass. They look like they're going to die. <laughs> and so we um, ended up working up. It ended up being something, again, tried and true. It ended up being botulism. So, you know, oh my as, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, it was really fun because I did not realize that it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those CDC select agents. So once you diagnose this problem, you know, they think we're going to be bioterrorists. So they said, okay, immediately upon diagnosis, you have to discard and destroy all your samples and uh, write this form and send it to the CDC saying like, you know, these samples have been discarded, all this stuff. Uh, yeah, it was something interesting. And nowadays with, again, a lot of production being back in outdoor access, botulism has become more of a problem, even in commercial production. Um, so it kind of opened my eyes to like, hey, no, you know, like the whole old uh, Sir Conan Doyle quote, like, you know, no matter how ridiculous or no matter how improbable it is, if you eliminate all the other possibilities, that's the answer. Right. So we were able to to work with the <laughs> oh my gosh a group in Pennsylvania who does uh, botulism toxin PCR, and that's how we were able to get a diagnosis. So, but it was kind of interesting. Um, that kind of stuck out to me because I I've never seen it myself, and I was able to to go out to the farm, um, take actually a bunch of students with me, um, and kind of work up the process from start to finish. So it was it was really interesting. Gosh, yeah that that one is really interesting. So. So what, um, what does the farmer do? Cause this is something that lives in the soil, correct? Like what happens after you diagnose botulism and you destroy all your, your samples on your end? Yeah. So the only thing you can do is management. So what they found out was the, so these were outdoor access chickens and they have dug a hole to get out of their enclosure and get to the pile of oh. dead birds. So we got rid of that hole. Uh, we talked about managing, you know, carcasses in a location secure and away from, you know, potential exposure to the other birds. Um, and then we kind of fared it out from there. So it's, it's a lot more of like a structural biosecurity and kind of management on, you know, the logistics side of thing rather than any kind of medical intervention. So, Gosh, yeah, that goes right back to what you said before that most of the problems are management related. That that is a serious problem that ended up being management related. Yep. They lost like 40 something percent of their flock. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. At least, at least for botulism, that, that should be an obvious yes or no. The bird will show or not, right? The rest of the birds, if they weren't showing a sign or symptom, then it was continue as usual. Or do you destroy the whole flock and start over? It was continue as usual unless they exhibited signs because usually once they're they're down, they're they're down. <laughs> they have twelve, twenty-four, maybe forty yeah. hours to live, and that's that was about it. So yeah, it was pretty easy to spot out the birds that were not doing well. Oh gosh, wow. Um have you have you had the opportunity to do um work outside of the United States as far as diagnostics go? I mean I, I assume that because you're such a big diagnostic lab that you might get sent samples from other countries, or is that not not true? I did actually have an opportunity to go out to China, and uh, we worked with a company to kind of do a little bit more training for the researchers that do diagnostics over there. So I, I had the pleasure to go to China, um, probably not on a diagnostic front, but I was uh, invited to go out to, to Kenya so we kind of talked with the the poultry veterinarians and some of the diagnosticians in the University of Nairobi diagnostic lab there too. So it was it was kind of neat to see you know that in other countries the the problems that they have are much more um, tailored to their region. So for example, out in Africa, the biggest problem they have is parasites. So their parasitology department is huge. Oh. They have multiple parasitologists. A lot of the research is out there. Um, and you know, the biggest thing is like the, in the U S we're kind of privileged to where we have a, a breeder program, national poultry improvement plan that kind of takes care of some of the, you know, infectious diseases that come genetically, but overseas there's no pro program like that. So problems like florum disease, you know, like things that we don't see. And I have, I've never seen florum myself, but that's a pretty common problem. So when they see diarrhea here, I'm like, okay, it's probably, coccidia or maybe they the birds got chilled that's what i'm thinking because that's more likely here in the u.s over there when they see diarrhea i was like oh it's plurum until further proven otherwise so it's kind of neat to see you know what what they see there commonly is not what we see here commonly so when we talk about differentials it's it's a lot different ball game and the diagnostics we have here again we can do all this high level 
techie stuff here, over there. You know, they're lucky to have a PCR machine, right? So a lot of the vets there are actually amazing at visual diagnosis. So I met a uh, small animal diagnostician in Kenya, and she was the known expert to diagnose tumors in animals. She can actually just do a physical exam on an animal and be like, oh, that, that dog has a pancreatic tumor. And I mean, with a fairly good accuracy, like this person was able to to distinguish sick animals from not with with a certain granularity. Of course, it's not going to be like, oh, this is a grade three lymphocytic tumor or whatever. But she can at least say, oh, this this dog has a pancreatic tumor. So it's kind of neat to see that, you know, like the rudimentary, not so definitive to like we have to run all these tests to come to a solution that she might be able to figure out a very base level knowledge with just a visual observation. So it's kind of interesting to see that progression. Gosh, that, that really, that really sure is interesting. That was probably really exciting to see some other, other sorts of uh, production schemes and meet with people who have had to develop those skills just because of the diagnostics that are lacking is, do you think that's something that should be more common in the United States? Or do you think it's good to also have to rely on the the diagnostic tests. I'm kind of more at this point where I, I want answers that are definitive so I can have an accurate solution mm-hmm. for. So I definitely sit in the camp here where I want to sit in my comfy chair and get all the toys to play with and get the correct answers rather than guessing. Because, um, I mean, the worst thing is you think it is something and you do something about it and it's not. And then you're at the point of no return. You sank in money, resources, or, you know, antibiotics you can't take out anymore. And, you know, that's, it's not, it's not a efficient way of doing things. It's not a judicious way of doing things. And it's not, you know, the smartest way to approach a problem. Yeah. Hey, I'm on board. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is, uh, is there anything else that we haven't talked about um, in our time that comes up as important or something that you would like the listeners to hear? You know, we're always looking for young, bright minds. I'm always looking for good grad students who are interested. So even if you're out of school, like, you know, 10 years, 20 years, you can always come back to research. So, you know, any listeners out there looking for a lab to work in and interested in poultry, even if you're not, because I wasn't either, you know, you never know what you're going to fall into. So if there's any interest, even if you want to shadow a day or so, let, let us know. Come look at our lab. Come over to the the dark side of yeah. chickens and uh, and other yeah. <laughs> and other poultry. <laughs> it is time to our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like at JBI. We apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. BSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions. From essential vitamins like High D to next generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. Um, so before uh, we end here, I want to ask you the three questions that, that we ask every guest. Um, and the first one is, what is your favorite poultry-related book or resource? Well, I have it ready for you right here. So this is my book. <laughs> that I use a lot is the avian histopathology book. You can see I have a bunch of tabs in it already. Um, it's great because it's a picture book. I don't have to read that hard, um, but it's very pretty. I can uh, I love I that. Yeah, I can have it online. It's right here on my desk. So if I have questions, I can consult with it right away. So it's, it's, a, it's a great book. So when you consult a resource like that, um, are the pictures pretty average of what you're seeing or are there some unique cases where you still don't know when you're viewing a slide? Oh, I have no idea most of the time. I <laughs> make my best guess. So what, what typically happens is like, there's something that's pretty definitive. Like, oh, I see 
a bacteria or I see a virus, I run a test and I confirm it. So that's pretty, that's pretty good, right? But that's not how life works most yeah. of the time. Yeah. So what, what I try to think about it is when somebody sends me a case, I basically try to see if my story matches their story, right? Okay, I'm not going to say, okay, this is a two-year-old bar- bird that has, you know, avian influenza or, or two-day-old bird that has influenza. That's probably physically impossible. So, you know, I try to make sure that it makes sense with the pathogenesis of whatever I've seen. Um, and also they're, you know, the clients are submitting stuff because they're paying for my opinion, right? I'm not going to be wishy-washy about what I think, but I'll tell you how I feel that day or what I think about it based on whatever experience I have. And, you know, if they're, they're like, I don't agree with you. And I was like, that's fine. You know, if you don't agree with me, let's send another sample. And maybe my opinion will change. Right. So um, I, I think, I think it's, it's kind of a trial and error type thing. And you kind of, I'm kind of at peace where, you know, I'm not going to find a solution to every problem that comes to me. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a really good take on it. Um, what is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? My favorite resource probably is the internet. I use my phone a lot. Um, and I actually probably more, more my phone than the internet. I call my friends. Usually I know somebody that knows a lot more about something else. So let's say I have a question about nutrition and then I go, beep, boop, boop, Liz, Liz Bobeck, call her, ask questions about nutrition. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I have, thankfully I've been in the industry long enough. I have a, a nice, healthy set of resources that people that know more stuff than I do. And if they don't know, they probably know another person that knows more stuff than they do. So that's usually my good, my go-to resources is other people. You're the, the ultimate networker. I love it. <laughs> um, so the, the last question is, in your opinion, um, what sets successful poultry professionals apart from those that are not? I'm still going to go back to connections. And I, I think I'll, I'll steal the word, words out of Todd Applegate. He says it takes a village, but it really is. So you kind of have to have a good team. I'm fortunate here at Iowa State. I have a, a, you know, a core team of, of my, my students and my colleagues that I work with, that I, I love coming to work with. I don't agree with a lot of the things they say, because we never, we always argue about, you know, <laughs> what it is, but I, I like that. I, I actually like having people who don't agree with me because it gives me a different perspective. And I think um, agreeing to disagree is is one thing, but having having a team that you rely on, but also can challenge you to become better and question what you're doing, so you can have a better answer for everybody else. That's that's what I that's what I think is important. So having having your having your own flock of friends, I guess. <laughs> Oh, well, it has been great chatting with you today. I always learn a lot talking to everyone, but just goes to show even when you're good friends with someone, you can always learn something more about them um, just by chatting like this. So thank you again. This was great. Thank you. Well, if you get interviewed, I want to vote for the interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Shameless plug. <Thank> <laughs>